Love Talk Radio. Son of a bitch. Welcome to the show, everybody. Um, I will be responding to some criticism today. Mm. Probably one of my least favorite things to do, but it's also probably one of your favorite things to see. So... <clears throat> Seems like y'all win and I lose on this one, but uh, haven't decided yet whether I'm going to lead with it or whether I'm going to put it off to like the second or third story. Apparently I should have brought some tissues in here. I got that like allergy season runny nose thing going on, so perhaps that was a mistake on my part. Um, But anyway, so I will be responding to criticism. I'll be, uh, we'll be talking about... CNBC protecting Big Pharma in the most disgusting way. These people are just absolutely terrible at their jobs, and you're going to see great, great examples of that. Um, Big Pharma stocks tanked a few days ago. I want to show you what that looked like, and we'll talk about why. Um, We got Elizabeth Warren hurling accusations of sexism at the female head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That's something else. I bet you didn't think that the president of Azerbaijan would make it into today's show, but he somehow did. Um, And then I'll be going after Dave Rubin, Tucker, um, and much later we have uh, a new study on MDMA and how it relates to PTSD and uh, some some really interesting stuff there, some promising stuff there. So uh, really looking forward to that. All right, so... Without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And um, I'm going to do that. You know what? I'm going to lead. 
I'm going to lead with uh, responding to some criticisms, excuse me, of me. Okay, here we go. So uh, you guys remember probably last week we did a segment going after the woke CIA recruitment ad. Now, um, I highly recommend that video. Everybody should go check it out, and you make your own mind up as to whether or not you think it makes sense. Um, But what happened was there were parts of that video that were clipped out of context, thrown up by a Twitter account who does this stuff all the time, who I won't name because no reason to give this troll more attention. And uh, so the people who already dislike me got to take something, listen to it out of context, and assume things that, of course, aren't true. Um, And admittedly, when you take parts of that out of context, you know, it, it maybe doesn't sound great. But when you're attacking the weaponization of wokeness done by the CIA to protect the status quo and continue um, the power structures, well, then it's a whole, whole different ballgame. So I did this segment the other week about the woke CIA and... I didn't think anything of it. The overwhelming majority of you agreed with the segment, but of course, some people on Twitter clipped it out of context and ran with it, and um, people who don't like me use that to come after me. Well, to my surprise, perhaps a little bit, somebody who I actually like um, caught wind of the clip, watched the clip, and uh, responded to it. So this isn't a segment to attack this person. This is, I view this as like an opportunity to further discuss this issue and dive into it and flesh it out and tell people what my position really is and what I think makes sense and what I think doesn't make sense. So you're going to hear here a clip of the streamer Vosh, political streamer, lefty, named Vosh, and he is uh, going to basically dissect this clip from my woke CIA video. Watch. intersectional. By the way, oh, sorry, this is in response to that CIA woke ad, which, by the way, was terrible. Nobody, no actual person in the real world uses that term unironically. It just doesn't happen. And sure, in, you know, elitist liberal academic circles, they might talk about their shit, but those, that's not a normal common person. It's not. It's not. There is nobody who's working a nine-to-five and trying to pay the fucking bills who's also you know, thinking about intersectionality and being cisgender. That doesn't happen. On top of bringing up intersectionality, she brings up the patriarchy. Oh. Oh. So now you see what's going on here. And by the way, this is not going to stop. So this is the CIA's doing it, the FBI's going to do it, the Democratic Party has been doing it for the longest time. I'm not for Medicare for All. I'm not for free college. I'm not for a living wage. I'm not for ending the wars. I'm not for ending the drug war and freeing the nonviolent drug offenders. I'm not for any of the actual policies that are important and would fix the country and make everything better. But I will say the word intersectional, and I will give you my pronouns in my bio, and uh, I will create an identity around my generalized anxiety disorder and make you feel like I'm relatable. I will, you know, say I'm on the LGBTQ spectrum or I'm cisgender or... You know, I, I believe in diversity, and I have people of color in my family, or I'm a person of color. They will give you everything when it comes to 
labels social issues. And by the way, it's layers that the CIA is doing the Democratic Party trick. I believe in diversity. I'm strong. I'm proud. I'm a daughter of immigrants. I'm a woman of color. I'm perfectly made. I'm proud of me. I'm a cisgender millennial. I have generalized anxiety disorder. I'm intersectional. I despise the patriarchy. And by the way, my main job is going to be to press the button on the drones that blows up innocent people overseas. Perfectly. There are a few others that follow it, but that's the main one. We can talk about that. I appreciate all the people in chat getting angry at Kyle Kalinske for saying exactly the sort of thing that I've said in the past, at least sometimes. Um, so let's talk about what we like and what we don't like, okay? So here are the things that I like. Uh, a lot of what he says for the majority of this video is kind of a paraphrasing of something Malcolm X once said about the um, symbolic gestures. The, what are the symbolic concessions? I'm not familiar with the full quote, or I don't remember the full quote. Um, but the idea is essentially this. Um, the elites, we can talk about uh, politicians, we can talk about the CIA, we can talk about corporations, whatever, people with social power, um, are more comfortable placating to what we consider to be intersectional uh, demands, intersectional wishes, uh, than they are meaningful class-based issues. Uh, and that is completely true. I'm only pointing out that to conflate intersectionality and liberal identity politics just because the CIA used the term intersectionality in an advertisement is very irresponsible to me. And the opening statement from Kyle Kalinske, you know, only liberal academics talk about this, strikes to me very similar to this really bad tendency I see from some populists online, where when they say the working class, what they mean is the white working class. There's a bit of an overlap there. Oh, the regular people, they don't deal with intersectionality. This is an academic thing. Well, to be fair, Marxist analysis is also not something the average person banties about, but the ideas are relevant to everyone. And to say it like that, it kind of makes it seem like, oh, progressivism, intersectionality, these are like frivolous, offhand issues cared about only by a collection of soy-faced academic elites. Real people care about working-class issues. Hey, well, the, predominant, the most predominant working-class demographic in America is and always has been brown and black people. If you want to criticize liberal impulse, go for it. God knows I do it. I do it all the time. But do not this intersectionality or intersectional analysis just because... The, the, the terms associated with it get misused, get, get cynically employed by corporations. Here's an interesting hypocrisy that I've noticed. You know all those leftists and left-leaning people who are like, intersectionality is stupid, we should focus on class issues. And the reason they say that is because, like, woke corporations misuse this terminology. You know what I mean? Like, I see that all the time. It's like, you know, uh, Coca-Cola had a Black Lives Matter stamp. Black Lives Matter has been co-opted by corporations. Why don't the types of people who say that ever complain about working-class issues being co-opted by Tucker Carlson? To be fair to Vosh, I don't know if that last part there that I showed you, and watch the whole video. I'll put the link in the video description box. I want you to get the totality of his comments, not just the snippets that I showed you. But So to be fair to Vosh, I don't know if that last comment was directed at me, or I don't know if it's directed at some nondescript you know, populist lefty that he's talking about who's online. But, you know, needless to say, and obviously you guys know this if you're watching this channel and if you do on a regular basis, that criticism doesn't remotely make sense when it comes to me. Because uh, you can do a search, Secular Talk Tucker Carlson. In the history of this show, we've done 32 different segments on Tucker Carlson. The overwhelming majority of them are to go after Tucker Carlson and the ones that aren't are like him debating John Bolton about the Iraq war, where Tucker's nominally taking the anti-war position, Bolton's taking the pro-war position. And even in those segments, what I typically do is say, and by the way, just so you know, even though he's right on this issue, he's generally a fraud, he's not really a populist, so on and so forth. So, you know, listen, 
just to be clear about this, I went back and made sure, and I searched Secular Talk Tucker Carlson. Here's just some examples of the segments that I've done. Tucker Carlson defends loser corporatist John Delaney. Tucker Carlson smears Bernie Sanders. Tucker's staggeringly silly Green New Deal conspiracy. Tucker Carlson's very stupid attack on Ilhan Omar. Tucker Carlson pretends to be against elites on Fox and Friends. And then, listen, I think the irony is that the most ironic part of this is as I was watching this clip from Vosh, and again, I don't know if he's specifically referring to me in that particular criticism. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt in the sense that we'll say he wasn't. He was critiquing some general, you know, populist lefty. But as I was watching that clip, the most recent upload on the Secular Talk YouTube channel was fraud populist Josh Hawley opposes even moderate infrastructure bill. So if the idea is like, you know, why aren't you critiquing um, the frauds on the populist right for weaponizing class issues, the response is simple, I am doing that. In fact, I do it all the time. In fact, you know, a lot of my segments, a lot of my segments are going after Fox News hosts. And the reason I do that is because Fox News is still the number one name in news. And so a lot of people get swayed by that nonsense. So somebody's got to respond to it. Somebody's got to respond to it. Now, I respect others who focus more on internet culture, online culture, but I like to have a mix of the old school stuff and the new school stuff because the old school stuff is still very important, even though many people online might, might not necessarily realize that. Okay, so that's the first point. The next one is, he says it sounds a lot like when I or people like me bring up the working class, it sounds a lot like I'm referring to the white working class only. I want to be clear about this. That 100% is not what I'm referring to. And I consider that so obvious that to make a distinction and be clear that I'm not referring to only white people seems silly to me. But having said that, there's clearly a number of people who don't see it that way. Vosh is not the only person making these sorts of criticisms. There are others as well, and I'm going to get to one in a little bit. I like Vosh, and I actually like the other guy who criticized me, but I'm going to respond, I'm going to, respond to the other guy's tweet as well in a little bit. But just for the sake of being extra clear, from now on, when I talk about the working class, I will either say the Rainbow Coalition working class or the multiracial working class. Now, is it a little annoying that I now have to put the thing that says, hey, by the way, I don't just mean white people? Yeah, that's really fucking annoying. And the reason it's annoying is because anybody who's familiar with this show knows when I say the working class, of course I mean people of all different races. And Bosch goes on to make the point like, hey, you know, who makes up a lot of the working class? People of color. To which I respond, exactly. So why would anybody think when I say the working class, I'm referring to only white people? I mean, I honestly think it's ridiculous. But just for the sake of clarity, from now on, I'll say the Rainbow Coalition working class or the multiracial working class. Now, beyond that, there's one criticism that I think has some merit that I will, I will correct. Well, actually, I guess this is the second one I'll slightly correct because I'm going to do the multiracial working class thing. But the other criticism that I think has a grain of truth in it is this idea that I unfairly lumped in intersectionality with liberal identity politics. And 
his argument is, yeah, criticize liberal identity politics all you want. I criticize liberal identity politics. But don't lump in intersectionality with it because that's not fair because intersectionality actually matters. Now, intersectionality, the concept of intersectionality is not something that I'm against. And the idea, for those of you who don't know what it means, and I know most of you do know what it means, but just to sum it up in layman's terms, it means that all these different political issues are linked and they're all related. So you should care about a variety of the issues. That's the idea behind intersectionality. So my problem isn't with intersectionality, the concept. I agree with the concept of caring about a variety of issues because they're all linked. My issue is with the literal term intersectionality. And the reason I have an issue with the literal term is because it's insular and off-putting to most normal people. Now, people also come after me for saying most normal people. When I say most normal people, I include people of color. I include the LGBTQ community. I'm talking about the overwhelming majority of people, full stop. And if you don't think that that word is off-putting to most normal people, you're not talking to most normal people on a regular basis. You're just not. Sorry. You know, it might be in certain clicks online that might be super popular to use the term intersectionality, but in the real world, it's just not. And if, if somebody disagrees with that, I just think you're factually wrong. And by the way, to prove my point, um, now I haven't seen polling on that specific term, cisgender, to be fair, okay? But if you look at the woke vernacular and how popular it is in broader society, this is the point. There was a poll recently where they asked Hispanic people, do they use the term Latinx? You know what percentage does? 3%. That's my point. That's my point, is that the language, the terminology is incredibly insular and subcultury. And if you want to be part of an insular subculture, okay, by all means, go right ahead. I'm not knocking you for it. But my point is, don't pretend like it has broad appeal, because it fucking doesn't. It just doesn't. Okay, now, there, there is some other stuff to respond to. So he goes on to bring up this thing called the, the Nazball vortex, Nazball vortex, however you say it. The idea is like, oh, you know, there's, you don't want to be part of the people aligning the far right with the far left, so like Nazis with Bolsheviks, um, because that's a dangerous game to play, and those people are, en are, are enemies, so on and so forth. My only rebuttal to that is I never tell people it's okay to be far right, to be an extremist. In fact, my record shows I deconvert people from the far right. In fact, that's the thing I'm most proud of, well, now the most proud of, before it was Justice Democrats or it was a tie with Justice Democrats. Now the thing I'm most proud of is when I go to Politicon in one of these events, the number of people who come up to me who say, hey, I was a Ben Shapiro fan. Hey, I was a Steven Crowder fan. Hey, I was going down the alt-right pipeline. And I saw your stuff and it took me out of that and now I'm a lefty. I lost count of the number of people who said that to me. And that really makes me proud. That really makes me happy. That's the single most important thing because I, I'm changing minds. Now, listen, I don't need to tell Vosh this. He changes minds also. I know it as a matter of fact. I've seen it. So I guess my point would be you can't just call anybody who has a slightly different approach to you or takes slightly different positions on issues part of the knots ball vortex as if now I'm somehow part of the problem or the populist left is somehow part of the problem. That's just factually wrong. Part of the process of deconversion from the far right, and this is really important, I want to stress this, is giving credit where it's due. 
that's part of the process of deconversion. So, you know, to give an example, I'll use the example I used before. When Tucker Carlson says, hey, we should get out of Iraq, the war was dumb, and I'm going to debate John Bolton on it, and, uh, you know, tell him he's an idiot for being a neocon hawk. Part of the process of deconversion is when you talk about that segment, you say, Tucker is nominally correct with the words he's saying on this issue. He's being accurate. This is right. Now, you also can bring up, well, let me explain why he's also a fraud. He's not really a populist. And, you know, he had some questionable comments on Iraq previously, what he called like semi-literate primitive monkeys or something live there. But the fact of the matter is, when you say, hey, you got a point when you school John Bolton. What happens is somebody who might be a Tucker fan would watch that segment and they'll say, well, okay, well, he just said Tucker was right about the anti-war stuff. Let me listen to what else he has to say. And then when you hit them with the criticism, they're, they're more likely to listen to it because you also gave credit where it's due. So, you know, there's a lot of libertarians who watch my show. Why? Probably because I'm in favor of ending the wars. Probably because I'm in favor of legalizing marijuana. There's a number of positions I have where I line up with libertarians, even though on economic issues, I disagree with them massively. The fact that I'll say, hey, you guys have a point on this thing, means they go, hmm, interesting, let me listen to the rest of what he has to say. That's an important part of the deconversion process. You can't just have guns blazing all the time for everybody around you, no matter what the details of what they're saying is, because then you're siloed off in your own little corner, and you're never going to win. You're never going to gain support. You're never going to push the movement in the right direction. So I think that's another important point. But I want to get even more specific. So let's get to my criticism of wokeness, okay? My criticism of wokeness is twofold. Number one, it's exploited by the powerful and used as a leftier-than-thou veneer. That's the CIA thing. And the CIA has done this a number of times. Corporate Democrats do this all the time. When these powerful institutions cave on the symbolism, they're caving on the symbolism. They'll use your terminology. They'll use your words because nothing hinges on it. And if anything, it reinforces these institutions of oppression and subjugation because then they turn around and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm in agreement with you guys. I'm with you all the way. Look, I said patriarchy. I said intersectional. I said, you know, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever woke term you want to use. So my first criticism of wokeness, I don't, even, I don't know how anybody could argue against that because that's just factual. And I, Bosch doesn't argue against that. He agrees with that. But my second criticism of wokeness Put policy aside for a second. Just put it aside. Because on actual specific issues, I'm not sure there's any disagreement between Bosch and I in terms of what policies we'd implement in the country on these social issues. But policy aside, the language and terminology of woke culture is insular, alienating, and sectarian, which is the opposite of universal. So the culture is purposefully a subculture, and you don't embrace a subculture if you want to win. You embrace an edgy subculture if you want to be in a cult with a small niche group. Now, again, I'm not knocking you if you want to do that, but don't fucking pretend like you're popular because you're not. Don't pretend like my point is wrong when I say most common normal people are not walking around talking about how my generalized anxiety disorder and my intersectionality and my hatred of the patriarchy and my cisgenderism or my asexuality or whatever, like, 
if you bring that stuff up and talk about it casually, as if this is what regular people working 9 to 5 are casually chatting about, it's just fundamentally not true. And when I say common normal people, I don't just mean white working class people. I mean people of color. I mean the LGBTQ community themselves. So those are my two criticisms. Number one, wokeness is exploited by the powerful and used as a leftier-than-thou veneer argument. And it's basically just caving on symbolism because nothing hinges on the symbolism, and they know that. So it reinforces institutions of oppression and subjugation. The second criticism is that policy aside, the language and terminology is insular and alienating and sectarian, which is the exact opposite of universal. If you're on the left, you believe in universalism. The culture is purposefully a subculture, and you don't embrace that if you want to win. You have to appeal to the majority of people whether or not you like it. Now, again, am I saying that you're not allowed to call yourself whatever you want to call yourself? Use whatever gender terminology you want to use? No, call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. No problem with that whatsoever. Identify however you want to identify. No problem with that whatsoever. The point is, don't pretend that shit is what's popular and that shit is what wins elections, because it's just not. It's just not that. So the last thing I want to respond to is um, another guy I like, Adam Johnson of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Um, when I responded to the tweet of me out of context attacking the woke CIA video, uh, I said, hey, thanks for sharing. This is some of my best work. And then I said, you know, this is the wo- I'm attacking the woke CIA stuff here. If you think I'm actually like anti-diversity, then LOL. Like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Um, but Adam Johnson responded to the tweet. He said, this is pretty patent boring right-wing anti-PC griping. I'm confused. Is it your contention normal common people have no awareness of cisgender as a term? You are aware most LGBTQ people aren't elite and work nine to five, right? And majority of them are aware of these concepts. So let's break this down. He says, this is pretty patent boring right-wing anti-PC griping. It's only right-wing if you define it as such. You say any talk of political correctness or wokeness from this perspective is by definition right-wing. Now, you can make that claim, but I don't agree with you. And the fact that I have this position, somebody who's clearly a leftist, and over 95% of my lefty audience agrees, and I know that because of the like-to-dislike rate on the video, well then perhaps you might want to concede that indeed this is not by definition right wing. But my guess is he's defining it as that because that's how he views it. That if anybody criticizes wokeness or, or political correctness, that by definition is right wing. So I disagree right off the bat. It's not right wing. You could smear it and call it right wing, but it's not. It's inconvenient that a lot of lefties happen to agree. Then he says, I'm confused. Is it your contention normal common people have no awareness of cisgender as a term? No, my claim is normal common people don't use the woke vernacular and the woke terminology in everyday life. And this is the part that pissed me off. You are aware that most LGBTQ people aren't elite and work nine to five, right? Yes, Adam, I'm very aware of that. And when when I talk about normal common people, I'm talking about the Rainbow Coalition. I'm talking about the multiracial working class. But it's amazing to me that a lot of people, when you talk like this, they assume you're talking about only white guys in hard hats in 1950 in a union. Why are you assuming that? That has a lot more to do with you than it does me. 
because my default obvious position is that when I talk about normal common people, of course I'm including LGBTQ people. Of course I am. And most LGBTQ people don't use woke vernacular. Most people of any minority group don't agree with the woke vernacular. Now, again, I have no polling on this specific term cisgender. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. But what I did find was a poll on the term Latinx. And very respected polling company, I don't know if it was Gallup or Pew or whoever, they asked Hispanics, do you use the term Latinx? And again, only 3% of them said, yes, I do. That's my point. That's, my, that's it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Normal common people, including people of every minority group who are part of the working class, of course, they don't use your terminology. They don't. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. Now, again, you don't have to like that, but it's a fact. So that's probably the, the criticism that most got under my skin is this idea that, like, when I'm referring to the working class, I only mean white people. Why would anybody ever think that? Because you're actually strawmanning people who believe what I believe and assuming that there must be some bigotry somewhere in there for them to make the claims that they're making. And I'm sorry, but that's just not true. Final thing I'll say is, to prove my point that when I, when I derided intersectionality, I didn't mean the concept, I meant the actual literal term. I say in the exact video that Bosch is responding to, I bring up Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars. I want to talk about justice for people of color overseas who are being killed by U.S. empire? and freeing nonviolent drug offenders, and legalizing, taxing, regulating drugs. The drug war disproportionately targets people of color. When I talk about all those issues, that's intersectionality. That's inter you care about all these issues that affect all these different communities. That's intersectionality. I'll go further. Do I support um, transgender folks being a protected class in the same way that uh, Racial groups are protected classes? Yes. Yes. 100% I do. So do I care about all these issues? Of course I care about all these issues. I believe in intersectionality as a concept. What I don't believe in is pretending like the term intersectionality is popular and that most people use it when they don't. They, they don't use Latinx. They use, don't use intersectionality. They don't talk about the patriarchy. And again, Define yourself however you want to define yourself. Use whatever terms you want to use. Just stop pretending like it's popular because it's not. That's the point. It's not popular. Nobody uses that vernacular except liberal elite academics and very tiny niche subgroups. Now, that's the problem that the left faces. And, and I really think this is maybe the most important point is that the left, at the same time, they want to win and get power and implement our policies they also sort of want to remain its own little exclusionary, edgy subgroup. You have your niche little fellow members of your cult that believe everything you believe. And you want to at the same time be countercultural and the dominant cultural force. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. Now, am I arguing you give in at all on actual policy issues? No. Not at all. Not at all. But I am arguing you do whatever the fuck you have to do strategically to win. And if that means dropping the edgy vernacular, who gives a fuck? Drop it. Drop it. Drop it. Drop it. Drop it now. Drop it ASAP. So that's my take overall. This is a very, very long segment, but I felt like it was important. Because, again, I like Vosh. 
Um, he's done some great work. He's debated so many asshole right-wingers. He's deconverted a lot of people. He does a lot of solid coverage. Him and I have disagreements. That's fine. You disagree with a lot of people, right? Like, you're never going to agree with everybody, somebody on everything. Um, but this needed clarification, and this issue needs to be dissected more because there is a breakdown in understanding or a disagreement, and I don't think that a lot of it is very constructive because there's just this straw manning of people who are on the populist left as if, you know, we're somehow a few steps away from fanboying Tucker Carlson or some shit. When I would put my record of calling out Tucker Carlson's bullshit against fucking anybody. That's not an ancillary point. It's not a coincidence that I'm also super fucking tough on that guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out the bullshit wherever I see it. That's what I'm going to do. And if sometimes it happens to be at targets that are sacred cows on the left, too fucking bad. Too fucking bad. Because I'm interested in actually winning and getting our policies implemented. I am a policy purist, and strategically, I'm the opposite. I'll do anything that works strategically in order to win. You could be a strategic purist, but if you keep losing, then you're going to keep losing. Very simple. And this sort of stuff, I do think, hurts. It doesn't help. So anyway, I want to give Vosh uh, an open invitation to come on Crystal Kyle and Friends. It'll be a friendly conversation. We can dive into this issue and many more issues. Um, I've talked with him a little bit about it previously. He's, you know, agreed to come on. We were originally trying to get him in studio. Now, you know, we'll, we'll do it remote, totally fine. So whenever he wants to come talk to me about this issue and other issues, we have disagreements about some Bernie or Bus stuff, whatever. Um, we can talk about all that stuff and more. So let's come on. You can come on and have this dialogue. And I also want to thank him for, in the criticism, being respectful and not needlessly hyperbolic and showing like some human decency because oftentimes online is a hellscape and people are vicious and they smear and they malign intentions and all this stuff. He didn't do any of that. His criticism was very respectful, very honest. And so that's why I'm more than happy to have a conversation with him. Consider this the open invitation. Okay. Did I miss anything? Because I wanted to cover all my bases. I think I covered all of it. Next. Now that I've spent the entire show talking about that, <laughs> let's, uh, let's try to get to all the other stories. All right, here we go. So Joe Biden tentatively is agreeing to a waiver of patent protections for big pharma when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine. It's a little more complicated than that. Um, He is agreeing to further World Trade Organization negotiations. So they want to work out new terms to do some sort of a waiver. Okay, so we have to wait and see what all the details are. But either way, corporate media and big pharma hates this. What they wanted was Joe Biden to be like, no, I'm not doing any waiver, and uh, Big Pharma is going to make as much profit as they want, and we don't care about people in the developing world. So here comes the corporate sycophants at CNBC to make terrible arguments against Biden. 
submitted the situation to debate this morning. I think the emotional response to this conversation is obvious. This makes sense, doesn't it? We want to help people save lives. Of course, everybody wants to do that. Whether no. this is the way to do it is a debate we've yeah, got to have, I, I and think, the risks around it need to be talked about. I take a distinction there with Ben Bain about the polarity involved. Maybe being in Washington, you're always seeing the polarity. I thought the Biden approach was a bit nuanced towards a discussion, towards a narrowness on the specific COVID-19, but it's real simple. The smart people that make these wonder drugs don't trust them. That's all there is to it, John. Yeah. I mean, this has been going on forever. This goes on to measles, German measles, This is a great concern people it. have. This is a great concern that people have. The least of this will be the first step towards something else. Yeah, the idea here of potentially opening up not only for another crisis, but uh, just in general to drug production, if you remove some of the financial incentives for biopharmaceutical companies to innovate, what does that do long term? That said, the yeah. Biden administration has been very clear, John, saying that this is a one-off, it is a very specific situation and does not set a precedent. And frankly, the move that you're seeing in the market seems to edify that people believe that for now, John. But what Every part of that is egregiously incorrect. They said, well, the smart people that make these wonder drugs don't trust them. This is the great concern that people have. No, I think the great concern that people have is COVID killing hundreds of thousands or millions of people and a new variant, um, you know, getting out there and the vaccine not even being able to defeat the variant. That's the concern people have. The concern people have is not that the smart people making these wonder drugs don't trust Biden. It's incredible. So let me give you some specifics. Taxpayers paid Pfizer, BioNTech, Novavax, and Moderna $13.5 billion for COVID-19 vaccines. So in other words, taxpayers funded the creation of the COVID-19 vaccines. Did you know that seven executives at these firms became billionaires and are now worth $17.2 billion? So this is the way the system works. You and I, with our tax money, pay for the research and development to create these vaccines. Big Pharma swoops in, buys up the rights to the vaccine, and then they price gouge and profit egregiously. So taxpayers paid $13.5 billion to create the vaccines. Then somehow, seven executives became billionaires and are now worth $17.2 billion. Pfizer, in just three months, made $3.5 billion. So when they say, well, the smart people that make these wonder drugs don't trust Biden, what he means is the executives who I talk to at Big Pharma don't like that Biden might cut a little bit into their egregious profits. That's what they mean. That's what they mean. And then when one of them says, what will this lead to? Will this maybe lead to something else? This is really scaring people. What that means is, what if you get rid of intellectual property rights and patents when it comes to life-saving drugs. Are we not going to be able to profit off of human misery anymore? Is that what's going to happen? Or there's some sort of fear-mongering about, hey, maybe will this lead to, like, the nationalization of big pharma, where they don't get to egregiously profit off of people's pain and suffering? Is that what's going to happen? So instead of talking about we need to protect as many people as possible, get as many people vaccinated as possible in the middle of this deadly pandemic, the idiots on CNBC are more concerned about lining the pockets of corporate executives and big pharma. And that's the perspective that they're talking from here. And it's not even close. 
And by the way, the people who make these wonder drugs are just not these companies. They're just not. They're just not. It's $41 billion worth of NIH funding goes to universities, and it's the government that does the research and development and creates the drugs. It's something like every drug in the past 25 years has been created with tax money by the U.S. government. And so these people, the smart people who are creating the drugs, are not Pfizer employees. They're not, you know, GlaxoSmithKline employees. Is that, I think that's a pharma company. I don't know. It might be financial. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's not these companies. They're providing nothing. The only thing that they do right now is get the stuff to market. That's it. But that's easy. You could easily get the logistics of that and have the government take it over. Listen, I told you, this is one area where I've become more radicalized, so to speak. I really don't think it's radical. I think it's common sense. Um, I think you should nationalize basically everything involving health care and health insurance, including big pharma. All they are is a mafia. All they are is price gougers in between you and your doctor. That's it. That's all they are. Health insurance and health care system is a scam within a scam on top of a scam. That's what it is. And so nationalize it. Nationalize it. And that's what, oh, what if they're nationalized. That's sort of the fear-mongering that they're doing. Good. I say good. You shouldn't be creating seven billionaires worth $17.2 billion. And the whole reason they are is because they're, the companies are being exclusionary about getting these vaccines, getting the technology for these vaccines to developing countries. Because their wealth is built on the debt of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. So, listen, you guys know I'm a free speech absolutist. But the fact of the matter is, these CNBC hosts, they should be fired because they're not doing their job. When you get a job, if you don't do your job, you'll get fired in any field. But somehow, on CNBC, if you do cheerleading for big pharma profits over the lives of innocent people, you get to keep your job. But that's the, the main point, really, is that that is what their job is. The whole point of CNBC, the whole point of Fox Business, the whole point of the financial networks is you guys go out there and represent executives and the corporations of the top 1%. You give their worldview. That's the whole point of these networks. But in a world that made sense, if you have hosts who are cheerleading for profits that lead to death, they should be fired. Because, again, your job is supposed to be to be a watchdog of the corporations, to be a watchdog of the billionaires, to be a watchdog of big pharma, to give the facts. They didn't give you any facts. They didn't tell you that U.S. taxpayers created the vaccines. They didn't tell you the price gouging that's going on and the billions of dollars that are being made by executives for doing nothing except stopping the vaccine from getting to the developing world. So they're not giving you facts. They're not giving you information. And they're just taking the side of profits over human lives, even if it leads to death. They're not doing their job but they are doing the job that CNBC wants them to do. You're supposed to represent the corporations. In fact, if somebody was saying what I'm saying on CNBC, I'd be the one to get fired. The person saying what I'm saying would get somebody fired. Because you're not supposed to prioritize lives of people over profits. So here we are. This is rank corporate propaganda. That's all this is. If you ever thought these networks were more than that, you're mistaken. All right, next. So big pharma stocks tanked over the idea of vaccines for all. Um, 
Well, let me start that over. So big pharma stocks tanked over the idea of vaccines for all. Let me show you. Pfizer, BioNTech, Novavax, Moderna shares plunged to session lows after U.S. backs waiving patent protections on COVID vaccines. And you can see the line there. It just plummets for all of them. So the reason I wanted to talk about this, and this happened like, you know, five days ago or something like that. Um, the reason I wanted to talk about this is this is the best evidence we've seen that perhaps Biden will do something real. In the same way that when Biden said we're getting out of Afghanistan, the CIA went and planted stories in CNN and other mainstream media outlets attacking that idea, saying it's unsafe and it's not the right move and it's dangerous and it's going to have all these negative consequences. The CIA was planting anti-Biden stories in the media, which led me to believe that the CIA really thought we were totally getting out of Afghanistan and they want to prevent that. That was the biggest piece of evidence that maybe Biden will do something real on this. This is the biggest piece of evidence that uh, perhaps Biden will do a, some sort of waiver for patent protections on COVID vaccines that has some teeth. Now, do I think he's going to go all the way? I don't. I don't because he's Joe Biden. You know, his career is representing powerful interests. Um, but this is some evidence to the contrary. So we'll see what happens. Listen, my takeaway is going to be the same takeaway as the Afghanistan war stuff. Just wait and see. And whatever happens, then you respond accordingly. So if Biden leaves 10,000, you know, private contractors and special ops people and intelligence agency people on the ground, all systems go attack him like there's no tomorrow. Argue against him. Let's get him out of there. But if he does take him out, credit. By the same token, if the waiver has some teeth, give him credit. If it doesn't, go after him ruthlessly. Now, every other time there's been a question as to whether or not he's going to do the right thing, he generally does the wrong thing. So be realistic about it. Have your eyes wide open about it. Um, but I at least got to give you this side of the story because this side of the story shows maybe there is a little bit of hope that he'll do something that actually helps the developing world. Okay. All right, next. This story is great because uh, it shows what CNN wants to be true versus what is actually true. So right now, there are a bunch of Republicans who are trying to basically oust Liz Cheney from her position of power. Um, and they're really going after her hard. The reason being, she's critical of Trump, and she basically said, January 6th was an attempted insurrection, and there should be punishment for Trump for that. I think she supported impeachment of Trump over that. So CNN is going to push this narrative of Republican civil war over this. They went and talked to some voters in Wyoming. Take a look. And that's why Wyoming, the splendor of Wyoming is plentiful. The number of residents is not. And that's why Wyoming only has one seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. So Liz Cheney represents every person in the state, like her or not. Liz Cheney has proved herself to be a lousy representative of the voice of Wyoming. And we spoke with a lot who are saying not. Here's what Liz Cheney wrote. The Republican Party is at a turning point. History is watching. Whose side are you on, Liz Cheney or Donald Trump? Donald Trump. If she runs again, I will vote for her opponent. 
Madam Speaker. Conservative groups rank Liz Cheney more politically conservative than Donald Trump, and she has a lifelong Republican pedigree with a father who served as vice president. A national anti-Trump Republican group has put up this billboard near the state capital of Cheyenne, thanking Liz Cheney for, quote, defending the Constitution. But it all matters little to many in this very red state who consider their Wyoming representative a turncoat and their ex-president from New York City a hero. I think she needs to go. Okay. Um, just because I don't think she did the right thing uh, for the Republican Party. She says that Donald Trump is lying about the election being stolen. I agree. Agree with that? I agree that the election was stolen. There's no evidence of it. Well, eventually it might come out. In this dispute, do you think Liz Cheney has the right to be angry with Donald Trump? No. Why? Because I don't think he's wrong. Do you think the election was stolen? I think it's possible, yeah. John Curtis remains upset Representative Cheney voted to impeach Trump. I read in the paper that she said she had to vote her conscience. Okay, uh, maybe she's forgotten why she's there. Her conscience isn't why she was elected. She's supposed to be representing the people of Wyoming. But there are plenty of people we've met here who very much like Liz Cheney's conscience. I just think um, she doesn't divide her thoughts along political lines. She speaks her truth, and I appreciate somebody with that type of integrity. Absolutely no doubt in my mind that Liz Cheney has the right answers and Donald Trump has the wrong answers. Van Meldlum is 95 years old and one of the relatively rare Wyoming Democrats, but she admires Cheney. Because she stands for truth, and at least, and a better Republican Party. And we do have to have two parties. Thank you, Mark. The Wyoming Republican Party voted in February to censure Liz Cheney. And here in the state's largest county of Laramie, the county Republican Party also voted to censure her. So you saw what they did there at the end is they like, we found plenty of people who support Cheney. And then they showed like two people or whatever. And another one who was like a Democrat who was supporting Cheney. Um, they're trying to gin up this narrative of like, you know, hey, it's like 50-50. It's like a split, it's a civil war or whatever. Um, now, in some ways, there is a Republican civil war going on. But this is really misleading, actually, because it ain't close, dog, you know, Worst case scenario for Trump is he's crushing somebody like Liz Cheney 80-20. That's worst case scenario for Trump. Really, it's probably like 90-10 or 95-5. So, but it's just it's hilarious to me that this is the narrative that they run with. Oh, the voters are split. And yeah, some side with Cheney, some side with Trump. No, the overwhelming majority of Republican voters side with Trump and don't side with Cheney. Now, they might not like the logical conclusion of that. CNN might not like the logical conclusion of that, but it is what it is. So it's Trump's party. Even though Trump nationally is not very popular right now, numbers are not great right now, in terms of that Republican base, he's got them on lockdown, son. He's got them on lockdown. The other thing that's hilarious about this is they want to replace Liz Cheney with her um, position of power. They want to replace her with somebody, Stefanik, Representative Stefanik or something like that. Some smart people decided, well, let's go back and check what percentage of the time Cheney voted with Trump and what percentage of the time Stefanik voted with Trump. 
for Stefanik, it was like 77% of the time she voted with Trump. For Cheney, it was like over 90% of the time she voted with Trump. I think it was 92% of the time. And the Trump people in the party are for Stefanik and against Cheney. And Trump himself is for Stefanik and against Cheney. That's the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. Because what does it show you? It shows you that, that at the end of the day, policy doesn't even really care to these people. And it certainly that doesn't even matter to these people. And it certainly doesn't even matter to Trump. So for Trump, it's more about the personal slight. Hey, you wanted to impeach me. Hey, you thought I did something wrong on January 6th with the attempted insurrection. Uh, I, I can't, I'm not okay with that. I'm so not okay with that, I'll take somebody who agrees with me less who didn't say those things and doesn't believe those things. That's the craziest thing in the world to me. Because again, putting myself in that position, I don't care about some personal disagreement, some personal beef when it comes to politics. If one politician votes with me 92% of the time and the other one votes with me 77% of the time, every single time I'm going with the one who votes with me 92% of the time. But that shows for these, it's just, it's all an ego battle when it comes to Trump and when it comes to the Trump people. It really is. You've got to keep it real, man. At this point, the people are still sticking with Trump. It does sort of look like a cult in a way where the dear leader can do no wrong and no criticism of the dear leader is justified and fair. Now, granted, it's a smaller number now. His approval rating is really low. But that base of the GOP, they're all in. The strongest Republican voters, they are all in for Trump. And they're really telling on themselves here with how little this is about policy, how little this is about the direction of the country, it really is just about, that guy makes me feel good. Trump makes me feel good. That's what these people are saying. And so I don't know what it is. It's the fact he's arrogant and brash and he doesn't back down. Is it the fact that he's now an endless culture warrior for the right? I do think that many of these voters, the culture war overrides everything else. And Trump's the embodiment of everything they agree with on the culture war. So... We'll see what happens with Liz Cheney. We'll see if she gets ejected from the party or from leadership. I mean, listen, what I hate to hear, and I actually heard this this weekend in, in Washington, D.C. Um, somebody, I heard somebody say, I feel so bad for Liz Cheney. This person was a Democrat saying that. And, you know, we know based on the conversation that was going on. But I feel so bad for Liz Cheney. So now you have some Democrats who are like, Oh, yeah, we support Cheney staying in that position of power. Why? Why would you do that? Because Liz Cheney is, agrees with Trump over 90% of the time, and when she doesn't agree with Trump, she's even more of a warmonger and an imperialist than Trump. So, why, again, if you're a Democrat and you care about policy, definitely don't support Cheney, but beyond that, don't even support Stefanik. Don't support any of them, because none of them are good on anything. So, again, I, the point is, you know, your bar needs to be better than, like, I'm okay with you if you hate Trump. Because there are plenty of people who hate Trump who are also wrong about virtually everything. And Liz Cheney is a great example. I have no sympathy for Liz Cheney. Is she right on the very narrow point that the election wasn't stolen? Of course. Of course. But look how low the bar is now. We're giving people credit for saying that? It's going to take a little more than that for me to think you deserve a position of power in the government. So, ugh, politics is so gross, and stories like this really highlight that. Because this is stuff that's 
being pumped out there by corporate media that a lot of people are talking about. And um, there's so much, so many more important things to dive into and discuss and to um, put out there through a megaphone with, with these powerful platforms. Why are we not talking about the war in Iraq and that continuing? Cheney's totally in favor of that, and Trump didn't end the war in Iraq. Why are we not talking about the, uh, the COVID economy and how people are struggling, homelessness is skyrocketing, uh, all these other problems, and this is where the main focus is. This stuff is so silly. Okay, next. Warren um, took some shots at the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That's Representative Pramila Jayapal. Um, Jayapal is to the left of Elizabeth Warren, and we just got this little nugget from Politico. This is fascinating, and it dates back to what was going on during the election, 2020 election. Soon after the debate clash, Liberal Representative Pramila Jayapal announced she would endorse Sanders over Warren. Jayapal later told others that she felt Warren had questioned her feminism when she called the Massachusetts senator to explain her decision, according to a person Jayapal told at the time. So Jayapal was even being a big person to call Elizabeth Warren to let her know, hey, I'm going to support Bernie. If I was in Jayapal's position, would I have called Elizabeth Warren to say I'm picking Bernie over you, Warren? No, I wouldn't have done that. Why do you owe her a phone call? Now, to be fair, I don't know how close their relationship is. Maybe they had worked together on some bills or something, and so there was enough of a rapport there or a relationship there where she felt like it was necessary. But that alone, I feel like, is a big thing of Jayapal to do. And if you're somebody who's on the left, it really wasn't a tough question. It was very clear that Bernie was the better candidate than Elizabeth Warren, especially after Elizabeth Warren started campaigning and showed how her folks was nowhere near on the correct issues and all these other problems. But Elizabeth Warren's response was basically to be like, oh, so I guess you're siding with the men over the women. That might say something about your solidarity and your feminism, Pramila. What do you want me to tell you? This is not good. I see what you're doing. You're going with the guy over the woman, and you're perpetuating the patriarchy. Seems pretty sexist. That's what that means. That's what that means. So here's why this story, I think, is important. Because what this tells me is it wasn't just that Elizabeth Warren was listening to her terrible staffers and that's why she steered her campaign in the direction of away from economics, away from serious policy issues and towards identity stuff. This tells me this is what she was really, what she really believes. She actually has evolved or morphed her politics away from the person who helped give us the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and towards somebody who's going to endlessly, you know, harp away on wokeness. There was some actual evolution there at some point, and it wound up with her questioning 
the feminism, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, who, by the way, is significantly to the left of Elizabeth Warren. Imagine being that kind of a person when you're told, hey, I'm going to go with Bernie over you. You get, like, really petty and vindictive, and you lash out in this kind of a way. It's just so sad. It really is. And it's amazing how far she's fallen. She went from one of the top contenders when she launched, because her reputation was that of somebody who was more on the left wing of the party and held Obama accountable on a number of issues, got into politics going after Joe Biden with you know, the bankruptcy bill, a number of other things. And then what she morphed into is just pure ego and narcissism to the point where she'll accuse the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus of sexism for supporting Bernie over her, questioning her feminism. I guess you're not a great feminist because you're not picking me. By the way, on the actual issues, who would have been a better president for women, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren? Bernie, of course. And I'm sure that's one of the things that Jayapal thought of when she said, I'm going to endorse Bernie. He was a bigger fighter for issues that would impact women in a positive way. She picked Bernie over Elizabeth Warren, and this is how she reacted. Man, it's so sad what she became. It really is. It really is. And by the way, a lot of the people who she's going after at some point wanted her to run. You know, like Bernie, Bernie wanted her to run in 2016. He didn't even want to run in 2016. He tried to get her in the 2016 race, and she refused to do it. And then fast forward to 2020, and Elizabeth Warren is accusing, accusing Bernie of being a sexist and not supporting and saying, like, female candidates can't win or whatever. Why would he advocate for you to run in 2016? He obviously thought you could win. So what are you talking about? Of course he can support female candidates. Of course he's not sexist. But again, this is what, this is what happened with Warren. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point Jaya Paul was urging her to run maybe in 2016 along with Bernie. There were a number of people who were calling on her to run in 2016. But, you know, there's also a deep sense of entitlement here, too. And I guess in Warren's mind, it's entitlement solely based on the fact that I'm a woman and you're a woman, Jaya Paul. But look at that. Look at that entitlement. You have to. You have to do this. You should do this. Of course you're supposed to do this. And I'm sure Bernie's, you know, when Bernie was pitching to the Jaya Paul, hey, could you endorse me or whatever, I'm sure that it was, you know, classic Bernie, like, so I want to ask you something, but I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit nervous. I don't want to put any pressure on you, and feel free to say no, but uh, would you please maybe consider supporting my campaign? I could totally see Bernie doing that in a typical, like, meek and nebbish way. <laughs> that is classic Bernie. So anyway, um, Elizabeth Warren, every time a story comes out these days, it's always, like, super cringe fest and, like, shame on her. Okay, next. President Trump, unsurprisingly, was abusing his office in a very, very clear way. Take a look at this. Slate is reporting on this, but it originally came from the Washington Post. 
The Justice Department under former President Donald Trump secretly obtained the call records for the phones of three Washington Post reporters last year in an effort to figure out who had talked to them. They also tried to obtain the email records for the three reporters, Ellen Nakashima, Greg Miller, and Adam Entos, who now works at The New Yorker. Federal investigators obtained the records for their work, home, and cell phone numbers from April 15th to July 31st, 2017. The three reporters received letters informing them of the seizure that did not specify what the seizure was about. But the three reporters wrote a piece published July 21st, 2017, about classified intelligence intercepts that indicated Russia's ambassador to the United States had discussed the Trump campaign with Senator Jeff Sessions. The documents that were seized are known as toll records and include the numbers of all the calls made to and from the phone numbers over the time period and how long each call lasted. The three reporters were also told that prosecutors tried to get a court order for non-content communication records for their work email accounts, but they never got them. So, um, to sum this up, what this means is President Trump did not like that reporters were investigating him, were digging into what was going on with his campaign. And so, this is retaliation where he's like, let's dig up their phone records and see where they got the idea to come after me and look for certain things. Who did they talk to? Who was the leak in the administration that led to them looking into what we were doing? And so basically this is revenge against reporters because reporters were doing their job. Now, listen, don't get it twisted. They were digging in relation to Russiagate. Again, they said, uh, Classified intelligence intercepts indicated Russia's ambassador to the United States had discussed the Trump campaign with Senator Jeff Sessions. So this is when they were trying to make the argument there was coordination and collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And so Trump might be doing Putin's bidding, and what are they really hiding? Like, this is really what they're getting at here. Now, that narrative turned out to be just totally untrue. We had a whole investigation on this. Mueller Mueller looked into every nook and cranny, and his conclusion was, I can't get anybody on Russia-related stuff. He did get people on non-Russia-related stuff, on corruption-related stuff, Paul Manafort, for example, Roger Stone. Like, a lot of these people went down for being corrupt goons, so they don't get a pass, but these specific claims turned out to be nonsense. So I actually understand why Trump or other people in his inner circle would be like, this is bullshit. What's going on here? What are they doing? I get that. You are not allowed to use the power of the federal government to spy on your political enemies because they have a belief, even an erroneous belief, even if they're doing some sort of an unfair search into what's going on with you and your campaign. You cannot take revenge, get retribution, and just try to pull their phone records and snoop through their shit. You can't do that. You simply can't do that. We're supposed to have a free press in this country. This sort of activity undermines freedom of the press. It sends a message. Hey, if anybody's looking under a rock, we don't want you to look under. The federal government can come after you. The federal government can dig into your personal life and your private life and see what was going on in your email and with your phone. Now, I'm sure if something was found, 
that the Trump people could have weaponized, they would have done it. You know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, but I'm pretty sure something similar happened with Elliot Spitzer. Elliot Spitzer was known as like the sheriff of Wall Street. He would crack down on them. And then eventually we learned that he uh, was going to basically illegal brothels. And that information was leaked. Now, why was it leaked? It was leaked because there were powerful interests who didn't like Elliot Spitzer because Elliot Spitzer was cracking down on Wall Street. And so they wanted to expose him. And they really effectively did expose him as a hypocrite because he was apparently cracking down on brothels at the same time he was visiting brothels. So he is a hypocrite, and that's not okay. But they went after him because they didn't agree with what he was doing. And so this is what happens when you have, in Elliot Spitzer's case, I don't know if it was the police department or whatever, there was effectively a shadow government, a deep state, if you will, that took him down. And this is what happens when you have rogue governmental agencies that determine, hey, turnabout's fair play, we can get revenge, we can get retribution, we could come after you if you do something we don't like. And that's what Trump did here. That's what his insiders did here. And so should they have even... Now, I don't know. They may have gone through a FISA court, and FISA courts are bullshit. They rubber stamp everything for the government to do their illegal spying, right? But should should Trump or the federal government have even tried to look at what was going on with these reporters? No. No. Because we have a free press in this country. Even if they're reporting on something you don't like, even if they're saying things that are untrue, it's a free press. It's a free press. You know how hard the high the bar is to get somebody on libel or slander or defamation? Nearly impossible in the U.S. for good reason. We don't want to tie the court system up with people with hurt feelings saying, you can't say X, Y, or Z. We have free speech in this country. We have a free press in this country. That's what it's supposed to be. So should the government be able to crack down because they didn't like the direction this reporting was going? Hell no. Hell no. Not even close. So Trump was basically trying to spy on reporters because the reporters were coming after him. And, you know, we perhaps shouldn't be surprised because his record, look at his record on Julian Assange. Edward Snowden wasn't given a pardon. Julian Assange wasn't given a pardon. If you were going to protect whistleblowers, if you were going to protect a free press, you would have to pardon them. And he didn't. So what does that tell you? It tells you Trump is an authoritarian wherever he's concerned. If you come after me, I'm going to come after you, and I have the power of the entire federal government to use. And that is exactly something the Constitution prohibits, some sort of thin-skinned authoritarian from weaponizing all this power to use it against people who are just doing their job. Let me take a break. When we come back... um, Congressional approval has skyrocketed. This is really interesting. So we're going to talk about that and much, much more. Stay right there.
I am back, bitch. All right, let's continue. Um, let's talk about this congressional approval rating. This is pretty interesting, if you ask me. This is really interesting to me. New Harvard-Harris poll came out. They asked about Congress. And so, you know, we can take a look at Congress's new approval rating. Check it out. 50% of the country approves of Congress right now. 50% disapprove. Now, you might look at this and say, wait, I don't, what's, what's the story? What's the issue? I don't understand. The issue is that this is like a record high. And when I say a record high, I mean, I think in my entire lifetime. I mean, maybe, maybe there was a brief moment after 9-11 when Congress's approval rating was super high because of this feeling of patriotism after we got attacked and we all came together, Bush's approval rating was like 90%. But that was super short-lived. And to be fair, I don't even know if Congress got the same bump that George W. Bush did. But this is almost like record territory. I mean, the last time you probably got this high was like, disregarding the 9-11 argument, was like maybe during FDR's time in office. This is ridiculous. So... Um, now, this you could say it's one poll. It could be an outlier, but there is a trend in a certain direction here. Um, so is this pure Gallup? I don't know if this is pure Gallup, to be fair, but they, they track it all the time. Like, they do it on a regular basis. And so you can see here that you have – it's 36% now approved, but that's higher than the month before, 35% in February – Higher than before, 25% in January, 15% in December, 23, 19, 17, 21, 18, 25, 31, 30. I scrolled back, and there was even a time where it was like it was as low as 9%, a 9% approval rating, which means that Congress was like one of the most unpopular things in the entire country. Maybe only like serial killers eclipsed Congress's unpopularity. So now it's 50-50. Again, if you want to say this is an outlier, so we really can't talk about it, I actually think that's a fair point. But you do see a trend in a positive direction uh, when you look at other polling outlets. So let's say it's anywhere from 36% to 50%, which is still a lot better than what it was previously. The question is, why? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? And um, I have to say, I really think the answer is simple. The government gave folks money. It's really that simple. I really think it's that simple. You know, we had the $600 stimulus under Trump, and then we had the $1,400 more under Biden. I think at this point the money's hit everybody's account, uh, whether you got an actual check or they did the direct deposit. When you give the overwhelming majority of Americans a check, now, by the way, I would have argued it should have been universal, it wasn't fully universal, but the overwhelming majority of Americans got a check. When you do that, people are going to go, oh, snap. The government just helped me in my time of need. I'm struggling, 
and I need help, and they helped. And the other thing I think you could argue is the vaccine rollout, because, you know, this didn't really occur to me until today or recently, but this is our first ever trial run, arguably apart from like Medicare, this is our first trial run in universal health care. This is our first trial run in having like a national health system where you remove all the barriers. And it turns out people fucking love it. When you get the vaccine, you know, there was a time we had to make an appointment. Okay, fair enough. Make an appointment. You show up. They do the shot. And that's it. You leave. That's it. It's that simple. Now you could just walk in. They do the shot and you leave. And it costs you zero dollars and zero cents. So we have a deadly, deadly pandemic. The vaccine was created pretty fast. The vaccine was distributed in this country pretty fast. Early on, we were having some, some struggles, but then once this thing kicked into gear, it really kicked into gear. And now we're doing a phenomenal job of vaccinating. And it worked. The vaccine was created. The vaccine is now being distributed very fast. People are showing up, getting shots, going home with paying zero dollars and zero cents. So listen, you got to give credit to Biden and you got to give credit to Trump for Operation Warp Speed and for Biden continuing it and ramping up the shots. So two major things that the government did and the American people are responding to it. This shows you guys, I generally think people are reasonable. I do. I really think people... They expect so little from our terrible government that when the government does anything right, like our first trial run with universal health care, trying to get vaccines to everybody as quickly as possible, not costing any money, and $1,400 checks, that alone made people go, oh, this is awesome. The government's doing something right. And hopefully it's a game changer where people now realize, hey, guys, it's not that, oh, we can't do this stuff because it's impossible or it's too costly, or it's crazy. No, it's that when the government doesn't do good things, it's because of corruption, and it's because of bad policy, and that we let them get away with not doing the right thing. But this was an instance when it comes to vaccines for everybody, and when it comes to giving people money, the government did the right thing. Now, it should have been $2,000 checks, to be clear. Biden said it was going to be 2000 and he cut it down to 1400 and said, well, you already got 600 so do the math. That's weaselly bullshit. But people were even willing to generally accept that because at least they got something. You gave me something, and we're getting the vaccines out there. So these are the two biggest successes in modern American history when it comes to governing. Getting people money when they need it desperately and putting shots in arms. And so that's all it took for the approval rating to skyrocket. Now, imagine for me for a second, this government decides. We're going to do real universal health care, actual universal health care. We're going to do free college and eliminate student loan debt. Instead of a one-time check, we're going to do a recurring UBI check. We're going to end the wars and rebuild our infrastructure here at home and make it number one in the world. Imagine they do three, four, five more things that people love. Hey, how about paid vacation time by law? Would you like that? Then imagine how high the approval rating could be. This is what I... I'm trying to tell you guys that oftentimes we have like a status quo bias or like 
a bias towards our own experience. And so what that means is sometimes we can't think outside of the box. Sometimes we think like, well, it's not possible for Congress to be popular. It's not that it's not possible. It's that they haven't done anything to earn the popularity. If they start doing things to earn the popularity, the approval rating will go up, and that's what's happening. And also, we can make it so that politicians do the right thing, and if they do the right thing, they could keep winning. Like, that's the thing is, we forget. We feel like every election has got to be somewhat close, and that we're always going to go back and forth and back and forth between Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. But that's not necessarily true. We haven't really had a president or a leader who really unapologetically fights for the right things and delivers on some of those things. When you have that, it turns out that person doesn't stop winning. And that's what happened with FDR, for example. He won four times because he kept doing things that people liked. And so now these days we think, I mean, could you imagine? Even uh, Now we have term limits, so you can't win the presidency four times in a row. But can you imagine four times in a row or five times in a row, the same party wins the presidency or the same party wins the Senate? That many times in a row, they pick up seats, pick up seats, pick up seats. You can't imagine it, right? And you can't imagine it because both parties underdeliver so fucking much that you think that's not possible to have like a dominant single party. But it can be the case if you actually fight for the people and the people see that, they will reward you in the same way they're rewarding Congress for having, getting shots in arms and the $1,400 checks. That's it, man. That's it. So there's a lot to learn from this. There really is. Anything is possible. You just got to do the right thing and then let the chips fall where they may. So there's, uh, there's some issues where there's too much bipartisanship. Yeah, I said it. There's this myth in mainstream media that bipartisanship is always good. And that's not accurate because it depends about the details. It depends on the specifics. What are both parties agreeing to in D.C.? Usually when they both agree, it's to deregulate Wall Street. It's to continue endless wars. Very rarely do they agree on something that's correct. It actually did happen with us ending support for Uh, the genocide in Yemen, but Trump vetoed it at the time. And Biden's unfortunately doing some Weasley middle pass bullshit on that now as well. So always beware people who claim bipartisanship is always correct because it's just not true. Well, now you get a great example of what I'm talking about. So this is from Truth Out, and they say the following. In an apparent response to growing calls for making U.S. aid to the Netanyahu government conditional on Israeli adherence to human rights law, 330 members of the U.S. House of Representatives signed a letter late last month insisting that $3.8 billion in annual military aid the United States provides Israel remain unconditional. The letter, which was signed by virtually all of the Republicans and over half of the Democrats, was a slap in the face to those who have argued that military aid to Israel, like all recipients of taxpayer-funded weaponry, be conditional on at least some level of compliance with human rights and international law. The lawmakers' overwhelming bipartisan opposition to conditioning aid is not a product of political pressures coming from their constituents. Polls show that barely one-third of U.S. voters and barely one-tenth of Democrats oppose such conditions. Rather, it appears to be part of a long-standing tradition going back decades of, of Congress rejecting the will of constituents in favor of the interests of arms exporters and the Pentagon. 
Only 18 Democrats, only 18 said we should condition military aid to Israel. So in other words, only give them weapons if they abide by international law and respect human rights. Only 18. It was 125 who said, no, we want to give them unconditional support. $3.8 billion in annual military aid. We want to give it to them no matter what. No matter what, no matter what. So think about that. How will history judge this? First of all, a fair, objective look at the situation, you would describe Israel as an apartheid state. And that's, that's, that, that might even be too kind to just call it that. Because there's an argument there's ethnic cleansing going on right now. So to say just apartheid is, actually might be too kind to them. And you have virtually every single Republican and more than half of the Democrats say, no matter what Israel does, no matter what, we're going to give them the military aid. So what if they lined up children and gunned them all down? According to this, these people would say, I don't care. Give them the military aid, no matter what. They could do apartheid. They could do ethnic cleansing. They could do genocide. I don't care. Our support for them is unconditional. So really what's happening is the politicians are listening to the military-industrial complex and listening to the Israel lobby. That's what's going on. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Some of them might have a genuine ideological agreement with that, but that says a lot about these people now, doesn't it? That says a lot about these politicians. So I never want to hear ever again from anybody that the United States does what it does overseas because we care about freedom, we care about democracy, we care about human rights, we care about justice. We don't care about any of those things, even a little bit. That's the bullshit, fake story we tell ourselves. That's the veneer we put on and show the world as if we're really moral people. <laughs> as we support apartheid and ethnic cleansing and continued human rights violations. Shame on these people. Shame on them. Shame on them. Only 18 say human rights and international law matters. Only 18. And God forbid anybody responds, why are you singling out Israel? <laughs> All right, let me make this crystal clear. The U.S. should cut off funding to every single human rights violating country and international law violating country. Every single one. Saudi Arabia, done. UAE, done. You name it, whatever it might be, done. I have no interest in putting the profits of Raytheon and Boeing and Honeywell over innocent people, victims of crimes by powerful governments. I have no interest in it. So I'm not at all singling out Israel, and none of the 18 who did the right thing on this are in favor of singling out Israel. But that will be the reaction. People will say, just like they say about BDS, oh, my God, you want to do boycott, divestment, and sanctions to make Israel abide by international law and give Palestinians their human rights? How could you say that? You're singling out Israel, and it must be anti-Semitic. Oh, is it, is it anti-Semitic? Is it Islamophobic when I criticize the Saudi government for beheading people in the public square? Is that Islamophobic? Is that what that is? All these bullshit, weaponized identity arguments, complete trash, not mildly convincing. And if you're even mildly convinced by it, you're a fucking idiot. So this shit needs to stop. And again, this is one of those things where oh, 
history is not going to judge this kindly, not even close. This is not a hard question. Of course, you cut off all weapons to human rights violators, to international law violators. Of course you do that. But see, the problem is this. We're the number one violator in the world. So, you know, we don't want to, we're partners in crime with Israel. Hey, you guys do your fucked up shit, we do our fucked up shit, and we still stick by each other, right? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? That's the way it works. And military-industrial complex keeps making their profits. The Israel lobby keeps influencing politicians massively. And Palestinians are screwed. And so we're not some sort of objective arbiter of peace talks to get some sort of, you know, reasonable conclusion to the conflict. No. We're on a side. And it's obvious. And if the U.S. government couldn't even say this, there's no moral authority on anything. Okay, next. The Azerbaijan president, Aliyev, he went viral. Um, and he went viral because he was talking to some Western reporter, perhaps somebody from like the BBC. And he went on the offense. Take a look at this. So let's 
let's be clear about all this. The Azerbaijan president, Aliyev, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but that's how I think you pronounce it, um, he is a dictator. It is what it is. So his dad was president, then he became president in 2003. Unanimous agreement, it was a fraudulent election. This guy has overseen torture. He's done arrests with no due process. He's, uh, there's credible claims of harassment of NGOs and journalists. And what's most interesting about him is that he's actually somehow a puppet of both the West and Russia. And that's very strange because usually that's not okay. Like Russia and the West will sort of make you pick a side. And if you're caught between them, good luck continuing to be in your position of power. So it's kind of fascinating that he's found a way to both have deep economic ties with Russia and be a puppet of Russia, but also have deep economic ties with the West and be a puppet of the West. So he sort of played both sides and somehow gotten away with it to this point. So he's in a unique position as, you know, a leader of a country who you could argue he's less free than any other leader, or you could argue he's more free, that if he goes after the West, Russia will protect him. If he goes after Russia, the West will protect him. So I don't know. You know, you can make the argument it's worse or better. I don't know. But um, what he says about Assange is totally accurate. Again, be clear, this guy's overseen torture. They don't have a free media there at all. So don't get it twisted. I'm not saying because his criticism of Assange is correct, therefore he's good. No. But this does highlight a real problem, which is there is no moral authority. The West has no moral authority. None. At all. Period. So the West can play this game all they want. We believe in freedom and democracy and human rights and free speech and a free press and classic enlightenment values. The West can say that until they're blue in the face. Doesn't mean Dickie McGee's act to anybody because everybody knows what we do in reality, what we do in practice, is not the same as what we say. So we're the ultimate do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do country. We really are. And what he's saying about Assange is correct. Can't lecture anybody about having a free press because look at Edward Snowden. Look at Julian Assange. Chelsea Manning was tortured. Thankfully, she eventually got out. That was one really good thing Obama did. But the West is absolutely persecuting Assange because Assange blew the whistle and showed war crimes. And he embarrassed the deep state. He embarrassed the military industrial complex and they struck back. Edward Snowden embarrassed the NSA. They're striking back. So you can't say, you just can't say we have a free press because the real test of how free your press is, is when somebody does something that actually gets under the skin of the powerful. How do the powerful respond? And the response in the U.S. was clear. Throw the book at him. Destroy him. Destroy his life. Torture him. That's what happened. And so this guy's right. He's a torturer. He's against the free press. He's authoritarian. But his point is like, you guys do the same shit. So you can shut up. You can shut up. Now, if you want to make an argument about scale, hey, who does it more? Who's more egregious and flagrant with their violations? Maybe there's a discussion to be had there. But the bottom line is, as a matter of principle, Everybody's violating it. And the U.S. has no moral authority to talk about democracy or talk about a free press when we also really don't abide by it. So we should lead the world by example and actually abide by the principles that we claim to believe in. And then we would have a point when we say to everybody else, that's bullshit. What are you doing there? That's not acceptable. But now we say it, and this is the response. And the response is true. And so 
seems like we went down a very, very bad path here. Okay. All right, next. This clip is hilarious. Um, Fox host Brian Kilmeade, who is one of the dumber people on the network, he had on kids to do the whole, like, we should open all the schools propaganda stuff and agree or disagree with that position. Not really the issue here. You're going to have a sixth grader give Biden some mild praise and Trump some mild criticism. And Brian Kilmeade couldn't let a sixth grader saying something slide. How close are you to getting back in the room? What do you miss most about not being in school? Um, I miss most, obviously, seeing my friends and all the after-school activities that I've done, and I think that we're very, very close getting back to school, and I think that um, the way that our new president is handling things is a very good way, and we would not have gone to this if it were still the last president. Really? That's uh, hard to believe, because the last president was saying, I want every kid back in school. Uh, so, uh, Lily, for you... Really? Do you just come after Trump? Well, I disagree because I like Trump. I don't like Biden, but I like Trump. What'd you say? You say something anti-Trump and pro-Biden? Well, Trump said you want to get schools open. So I don't even know what you're talking about. What a goofball. Yeah, Trump wanted to get everything open with zero control of the virus. Now, Biden hasn't been amazing on that stuff, but more shots are getting in more arms. The cases are dropping. Um... I think there's still a debate about when's the right time to open certain things or whatever. Uh, but Kilmeade couldn't help himself. He had to rush in there and defend Daddy Trump. I will say that with the sixth grader, don't get it twisted, guys. Generally speaking, when a sixth grader has some sort of political opinion, it's because their parents have that opinion and they're parroting their parents. So that's what I think happened here. Maybe the parents went as far as to say, like, say, say this when you're talking on Fox News, and then the kid did it. That's also possible. But either way, it is so funny that Kilmeade could not help himself, could not help himself, and had to jump in and had to defend Trump. Now, in terms of the actual issue, what should be going on with schools? Um, so the, the thing the kid said, he's like, I miss my friends and after-school activities. Okay. Well, listen, we, we already know and the CDC and the FDA said this recently, that if you're outside and you have any sort of distance between you and the people around you, it's totally safe to be out there. In fact, they say now it's more likely that you get sick inside when you're 60 feet away from somebody. You could still get COVID that way, but you're unlikely to get COVID if you're outside and you have like six or 10 feet between you and somebody else. So it's really not spreading outside. So my reaction to that is pretty much exactly what the CDC and the FDA is saying, which is after-school activities, have at it. Everybody go out there, play baseball, play soccer, play whatever, 
that it, it's safe. It's safe. It's relatively safe to be outside. The only thing I would caution against is if you're outside literally like arm to arm with people right next to each other talking directly into somebody's face. That's the only thing that's maybe questionable. But outside of that, whatever after school activities you want, it should absolutely happen for sure. Um, in terms of being in the classroom, kids do much better when they get COVID, but the problem is they can spread it to people who aren't kids and those people can die and the numbers can skyrocket and all these things, right? So um, if you're going to open up all the schools, and maybe that is the right thing to do, I don't know. You, maybe you do some hybrid of online learning at home and, and uh, you know, in-person learning in school, or maybe you just mandate masks whenever people are inside. That seems relatively, you know, a mild regulation that would probably help massively. Or, I mean, if you really want to get creative with solutions, maybe what you do is uh, flip the year. So from now on, have schools in the summer and have the schools done. You could even have them outside, right? Have some classes outside. School done in the summer, have it done outside. Um, and then you, instead of getting a summer break, you get a winter break. Basically all of winter, you're inside. Uh, excuse me, you're at home. So, you know, these are, I'm just, I'm just, you know, shooting from the hip here with potential solutions. But um, it's very weird that for so long, it seems like everybody's assumption was like, we got to get the kids back to school ASAP. And like, I get it, but I really think that that instinct comes more from the parents being annoyed as fuck that their kids are always home and they're really annoying the shit out of them. I really think that's more why you've had this nonstop call of like, get the kids back to school ASAP right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. And there's also been like a downplaying of the potential downsides of that where yes of course you can you can definitely increase COVID outbreaks a lot if you have the kids in school and they're not wearing masks and it's during the winter they're inside that could be a real problem so now I'm not saying don't send them back but what I am saying if you're going to do it just be reasonable about rules and regulations and clever ways of getting around problems so but anyway um I feel bad. These kids, I miss my friends. I miss after-school activities. They should 100% bring those back because they're safe. So bring them back. Um, And Brian Kilmeade, of course, being Brian Kilmeade, I really would have loved it if he kept arguing with the kid. Like the kid said something back, and then he's like, oh, yeah, well, you don't know anything. You're just a sixth grader. Because I really do think Brian Kilmeade is that dumb. He's phenomenally dumb. Tucker Carlson, for a very long time, did the fake populist tap dance. He would pretend that he's a populist, and he's against the elitists, and, you know, he's more reasonable than the other Republicans. A great example of this is when he gave credit to Bernie Sanders and AOC when they said, um, we want to limit the amount of money that, that banks can charge you in interest. I think they wanted to limit it to 12% max. And Tucker did a segment, he's like, they're right, and Republicans should be the one pushing this issue. So shame on them for not doing it. So, but this is what he's always done. He'll take some issue where he's on the more popular side, like go after Amazon and Bezos or something, and um, he'll use that to try to hook people in. Like, oh, oh, he's like a, a, a working class like Republican. You know, he supports the working class as a Republican. So that's great. But as I told you a million times, ultimately he's a fraud because he takes all that populist energy and redirects it into supporting the same establishment Republican politicians who in no way, shape, or form are representing working people. But now he let the mask slip. He went on a rant in response to these new job numbers, uh, which were worse than expected. He went on a rant, and he goes full anti-populist. He goes full elitist. So what would happen? 
happen if you gave a group of angry, ignorant ideologues, the same people who tell you that all lives don't matter, what would happen if you gave them the keys to the U.S. economy? We don't need to guess about that. We are finding out now because all around us there are signs that under this White House things are getting dangerously flaky in our economy. Here's one example. The official government jobs numbers came out today. Unemployment is up, far higher than expected. Close to 14 million Americans say they want to work but cannot find a job. That's an old story. Here's the new twist. At the very moment that unemployment is rising, fewer people are working, American businesses say they can't find employees. And it's obvious they can't. Go to the nearest strip mall and count the help wanted signs on the doors. They're everywhere. Restaurants are closing because they can't find anyone to hire, so a manufacturing plant. That means America now has far too many workers, but simultaneously far too few workers. How can that be? When you print too much fake money, the value of that money declines. People start to figure out that it's not real, and you get inflation. That's always true. No one disputes it. The White House just doesn't care. Here's the new Treasury Secretary telling you not to worry about inflation because it's not a concern. And I think the economy is going to get back on track. I don't anticipate that inflation is going to be a problem. But it is something that we're watching very carefully. I don't think there's going to be an inflationary problem. You know, President Biden has also proposed further substantial spending packages we would love to see enacted into law. Oh. So just keep spending trillions of made-up dollars to pay off your political constituencies because there won't be an inflationary problem. Right. Thanks, genius. How'd you get that job anyway? What is going on here? Probably a lot of things. It's a huge country and a pretty complicated country, but here's one reason behind what we're seeing. The government is paying people to stay home. This is standard right-wing economic bullshit that could have been delivered by Ben Shapiro. It could have been delivered by George W. Bush. This is trickle-down Reaganomics Garbage. Garbage is what this is. The government is paying people not to work. So which thing are you against? Unemployment insurance? The stimulus checks? Which thing are you against? I'm very curious, Tucker. Please, be specific. Which things would you say scale back on that? So in other words, instead of saying, hey, yeah, people are getting some money because we have a pandemic and so many people lost their job and so many people are screwed, Instead of looking at people who are struggling and say, yes, help them out, cut them a check, um, and, oh, my God, people aren't going back to work. Hey, businesses, you should raise wages to incentivize these people to go back to work. What does he do? He's insinuating or implying, like, we shouldn't have done either the unemployment insurance or the stimulus checks. That is a bullshit right-wing economics position. So I want to go through more of what he said here. He talked about, oh, the jobs report is really not that great. Uh, there were only like there were only like 220,000 uh, jobs that were created, um, and the estimate was like 900,000 to a million. Now that is true, but what they don't tell you is it's very likely that without this recent massive stimulus, um, we may have like lost a million or two million jobs. That's very, that definitely could have happened. 
And so with the stimulus, oh, we only gained 220000 Gaining 220000 is a lot better than losing millions. But he doesn't even give you that option. He doesn't even say, like, well, this might be what's happening. He does a typical right-wing, like, you know, oh, well, this is bad because Biden's economic approach is bad. To the extent Biden's economic approach is bad, it's that he's not left enough. Not that he's too far left. Um, he says unemployment is rising, but also people don't want to work. Again, I, I would take issue with, I'm not sure that's accurate, but, he, but assuming it is accurate, assuming it is accurate, just tell businesses to raise wages. Incentivize them to get back to work. I thought incentives were what people cared about, right? This is what you hear from right wingers. Oh, you've got to incentivize it. A good way to incentivize it is to pay them more to work. Not, hey, take away the bare minimum help that we've given people. Make people suffer more. Take away the unemployment insurance or take away the, the stimulus checks. But again, this is what he's implying here. And then, you know, the full right-wing positions are, he says, when you print too much fake money, inflation is coming, and that's going to be a problem. Guys, this is Austrian economics nonsense. That's what this is. So in other words, he's not taking the modern monetary theory position or the Keynesian position. That would be the populist position. One of those two, that would be the populist position. He's taking the Austrian economics position. As a matter of principle, the government, uh, you know, can't, increase capital flow into the society and into the private market. Um, you can't print fake money, as he says. You can't do stimulus in an economic downturn because that, by definition, is bad because it, by definition, will lead to inflation. That's just fundamentally not true. And the evidence for that is what happened during the Great Depression? What happened during the Great Depression? So FDR comes in, does the New Deal, does these massive spending programs during a giant economic downturn, during a a depression, a literal Great Depression, and it didn't lead to inflation. It helped the economy get back on its feet, and it helped the American people. But these are the same arguments people were making back then in the Great Depression. Right-wingers would say, oh, no, you can't do this stimulus. You can't do this New Deal. You can't have the government spend all this money, because where are you going to get the money from? I guess you just have to print it. And, oh, if you print it, it's going to devalue the, you know, the currency. So the part that they don't tell you is this. Typically, for inflation to happen, you also need colossal political instability. So it's not just like, oh, the government increases the, the money supply. That's not it. It's also you have to have politi massive political instability accompanying that as well. And, and by the way, if inflation does start to happen, then there are ways to ameliorate it that economists have. It's not like, well, well now we're just totally fucked. Especially, and the United States, we have our own currency, our own sovereign currency, and we're the world reserve currency. So it's a very different situation than what he's letting on here. And he says about Yellen, oh, okay, you're going to keep spending trillions to pay off political constituencies. So that's his besmirching and putting down of the COVID relief packages. That's what that is. What he doesn't tell you is that there's just good policies in there, like the expanded child tax credit, for example. That's a good policy. The $1,400 stimulus check. That's a good policy. That helps a lot of people. A lot of the support the government is giving the people, that's going to pay for diapers and baby formula and to keep the lights on. And he smugly asserts that that's just spending trillions to pay off your political constituencies. Political constituencies, that's for the American people. So, yes, those are, that is the political constituency, but that's them doing their job. 
So he's taking, without any doubt here, he is parroting Austrian economics talking points, which is far-right economics, and he is giving the polar opposite argument to the FDR approach and the Keynesian approach and the social democratic approach. And if you were a populist on the right, you would absolutely agree with the FDR approach, the Keynesian approach, or even the modern monetary theory approach. You'd absolutely agree with the government doing stimulus spending when there's an economic downturn, when there's a you know, pandemic. You absolutely would agree with that. You would agree with direct checks to people. You would agree with expanded unemployment insurance. You would agree with the expanded child tax credit. That's what a populist believes. Now, somebody on the populist right, yeah, they might disagree with you and me on whatever, abortion, gay marriage, guns, whatever it might be. And that's the disagreement. But on economic stuff, they're supposed to agree. This guy pretends he's a populist, and then he disagrees on the exact issues that define whether or not you're a populist. So this, total bullshit. Total bullshit. He sounds exactly like Ben Shapiro here. He, just, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's not really familiar with various economic theories. He doesn't know anything about modern monetary theory or Keynesianism or Austrian economics. He doesn't know anything about any of that. He's parroting tired, old, stale arguments. I mean, these are the same people. The arguments he's making is the same people who've been saying forever that Japan is going to have a debt crisis because they have a high debt-to-GDP ratio, and that's never happened. There's all mass inflation is going to come to Japan. Weird, it hasn't happened. Why hasn't it happened? Maybe because your theory is fucking wrong. It's wrong. And if you control your own money supply, you're a sovereign country. It's not just that, oh, you increase the money supply or you spend money, therefore it's going to lead to inflation. There's another piece to the puzzle, the massive political instability that you're ignoring for the convenience of your fucking argument. So he's taking the anti-FDR, anti-populist position, and he's fear-mongering about bare minimum help for people in the middle of a pandemic and a huge economic downturn. Pathetic. He replaced Bill O'Reilly in the time slot, and now he sounds exactly like Bill O'Reilly. Populist my ass cheeks. Okay, next. Larry Kudlow got lost in his own talking points discussing the economy. Here he is talking to Laura Ingram. This is hilarious. Long-term unemployment, 27 weeks or more unemployment. So that's, you know, think of it as six months or so. That is not falling. It has not fallen at all. It's stuck at 4.2 million. And I think that's because unemployment benefits are too generous and too long. So you're getting structural unemployment because the incentives are not to work. But I will say this, Laura, um, all is not lost. There's some optimism. Wages went up a lot, so that's really good. I don't think it had a thing to do with stimulus, but wages went up a lot. My point is this. Biden can blame whoever he wants to blame. The public sees right through it. It's phony baloney. There is no crisis. There is no health care crisis. Thanks to Trump, there is no COVID crisis. Thanks to Trump, we have low taxes and regulations. There is no house on fire. The economy is not crashing. Global warming is not an existential threat. But Larry, All these pillars, there, there is no logic or facts to defend Biden's assertions. And I think that's important. That's amazing. So I just showed you some, some little snippets of this interview. It's, the whole thing is hilarious because they keep going back and forth, Laura Ingram and Larry Kudlow, from saying, oh, my God, this jobs report is terrible, and Biden is doing a terrible job with the economy. Isn't he an idiot? Let's attack him. He owns this bad economy. They go back and forth between that and saying, actually, the economy is great. It's in great shape, and we give credit to Trump because the economy is in great shape. 
you do realize you can't have it both ways. Either the economy's good or the economy's bad. You can't say it's good and give credit to Trump because it's good and it's bad and blame Biden because it's bad. They're getting lost in their own talking points. It's one of the most hilarious interviews I've ever seen. Larry Kudlow is like the epitome of somebody who's in over his head, who he thinks he's a genius, but he's a total mess, has contradictory beliefs. He's been wrong about virtually everything. I mean, this is a guy who said, oh, there is going to be no downturn right before the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. That's who Larry Kudlow is. So some of my favorite parts here, he says, unemployment benefits are too generous and too long. So in other words, this is the standard thing they do now. Hey, instead of incentivizing people to go back to work by them raising wages, which would get more people to work, instead of that, say, oh, no, the problem is we're giving people too much of a safety net, too much help for them to be able to afford their baby formula and diapers and keep the lights on. So take away the unemployment insurance, take away the stimulus check, take away the help, and force them back into the market where, where they will make less money for actually working. Why would anybody do that? No. You should raise the wages, and that'll get people to start working. Don't take away the bare minimum help that people are getting. Don't do that. Can't do that. But that's his, his opinion. Hey, we should screw people over more because that'll help the economy. Hey, screw over Americans who are in desperate need of assistance because I just want to force them into shitty low-wage jobs. He's telling on himself here, man. He's telling on himself. Then I love this part. Quote, wages went up. It didn't have anything to do with stimulus. I'm pretty sure it had everything to do with stimulus. Larry, everything to do with stimulus. Then, quote, there is no crisis. There is no health care crisis. There is no COVID crisis. I can't. This guy... This guy's the dumbest. I'm not even getting into the, the, the hit on climate change or whatever. There is no crisis. There is no healthcare crisis. There is no COVID crisis. There's no crisis? You do realize that in this country, we have tens of millions of uninsured people. You do realize that people are still dying every five or six days. We have a 9-11 worth of people dying from COVID. There is no COVID crisis. There is no healthcare crisis. And then he does the only thing he really knows how to do and the only thing he really believes, which is eventually he redirects back to, well, isn't it great when we cut taxes and did deregulation? No, actually, that's one of the biggest things you did wrong is they cut taxes, mostly for the wealthy. 83% of the benefits of their tax bill in 2017 went to the top 1%. So that was a problem. And the deregulation is horrendous. Some of the deregulation they did, for example, they reduced clean water and air protection. Is that something to brag about? They, they destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's a bureau that returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans, protected Americans over big financial institutions. They gutted that. They got rid of the, the regulations and the lawsuits against predatory payday lenders. That's the deregulation that they did. Sure, let Wall Street do whatever the fuck they want. We don't fucking care. Deregulate, cut taxes on the rich, and act like that's, you know, the best thing anybody ever did. And attack Biden for the economy being shitty and give Trump for the economy being great all at the same time. This guy's a fucking jackass, man. He really is. Larry Kudlow, one of the guys who's wrong about everything.
Okay, next. Dave Rubin uh, seemingly ran out of people to talk to on his show. This is both hilarious and sad. Take a look. Credit to Dave Rubin Clips for this, for this little segment that you're about to see. But the job for the rest of us is not to go into those silos. And, and by the way, I don't think that guys like us are doing that. Yes, is it much easier to get people that are, say, right-leaning on my show? Of course it is. Will I continue to try to reach out to the few lefties that are willing to have conversations? I will, but I'll tell you this. First off, most of them won't. They just won't. I mean, they just won't debate ideas because why would they? They've labeled everybody Nazis, and why would you talk to Nazis? And then also, why would you allow Nazis to be on YouTube, and why would you allow Nazis to sell their books on Amazon? And then next thing you know, Dr. Seuss is a Nazi. I mean, you see the never-ending expansion of this thing. But I'll continue to reach out to people that will do it respectfully. But I can even tell you this. Even some of my old liberal crew, it's getting harder to talk to them because they're afraid that if you talk to somebody that's more right-leaning, that the, the base will go for them too. So it, it makes our job as people that truly want to explore ideas harder. It's amazing to me he's still doing this tap dance as if his whole thing is, I just want to explore ideas, bro. That's all I want to do. Almost every guest on his show explores the same tired old right-wing ideas. And by the way, most of his conversations come back to the same annoying-ass point of like, wokeness bad. Got it, bro. Wokeness bad. Oh, man, the left has really gone crazy. Isn't political correctness out of control? Isn't wokeness really bad? I think it's bad. Yeah, I got it, bro. That's like your one point that you always come back to. And again, anytime he talks to anybody else, it's some right-winger discussing some right-wing idea. He just had fucking Mark Levin on his show the other day, one of the dumbest and most hyperbolic right-wing talk show hosts in the country. So uh, it's just funny to me that at this late date, he's still pretending like, I'm just the ideas guy, bro. I'm just, I just want to explore ideas. The same, like, five ideas over and over and over, and don't discuss any actual left ideas. So then he says, well, listen, it's just easier to get right-wingers on his show. That's true. I'm sure it is a lot easier to get right-wingers on his show. On his show. But then he says, most lefties won't come on. They won't debate ideas. No, 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 Dave. See, that's where you're wrong. The lefties that you want to come on won't come on. So the ones that you think would be either more in agreement with the right or even dumber than you and easier for you to beat them in some sort of a debate. Those are the ones who won't come on. There are plenty of lefties who will go on, but you don't want them on. I mean, Sam Theater's been begging to debate Dave Rubin for years. Now, regardless of what you think of Sam Theater, put it aside. You could love him. You could hate him. You could be somewhere in between. It doesn't matter. He's somebody who's been saying, hey, I would like to talk to you about a bunch of these things, and Dave won't have him on. Vosh, for example, is a guy who, he's a streamer, and he's a lefty, but he mostly, he oftentimes does debates. It's one of the main things that he does. He fancies himself a bit of a debate bro on the left. Why not have him on? I just cited two who would be more than willing to come on at any time. And I'm sure there's way more who would love to come on as well or who would have the conversation with you, whoever it might be. 
whether it's Humanist Report, whether it's David Dole, The Rational National, Farron Cousins, there's a number of people who will go on and talk to you about these ideas, but you actually don't want to have those people on. And Dave will lie to himself and lie to you and say, like, oh, it's just because you're all, like, smear merchants, and so you're not serious, and that's why I won't have you on. But isn't it convenient? Anybody who's ever criticized Dave in his mind is by definition a smear merchant. And so he already pre-excludes anybody who's been critical of him from coming on the show. So don't tell me that you're about debating ideas. You're literally the exact opposite. That is not true at all. You're not at all about debating ideas. Just be more honest. Just be like, hey, I lean right now. Most of my friends lean right now. So I mostly want to talk to right-wingers because that's where my opinions are and that's what I want to do. Okay, fair enough. But he doesn't say that. He's still doing the bullshit, the lying, the, you know. And then he goes on, this is the best part. Even some of my old liberal crew, it's getting harder to talk to them. You know what that means, right? And I, could, I even might be able to tell you exactly who he's referring to. Talking about the Weinstein brothers, one or the other of the Weinstein brothers. And he's talking about like Sam Harris. He's talking about people who are to his left. And those people see, hey man, you pretty much exclusively have on right-wingers, and oftentimes even far right-wingers. And we, don't, we think that those people say, oftentimes on your show say terribly incorrect things and get away with it. And so I don't know if it's a good idea that you have these guys on if you let them spew the misinformation and you don't push back against them. That's the gist. And, that means, and Dave Rubin's reaction to that is, even some of my old liberal crew, it's getting harder to talk to them. These guys have an issue with me letting on any insane far-right winger to spew bullshit and me not pushing back on them. So now it's harder for me to get along with Sam Harris or one of the Weinstein brothers or anybody else who he puts in this category. But isn't that funny? So Dave Rubin is running out of people to talk to. All he has is right-wing hacks. And so he's going to stay in that right-wing hack sphere. But now he's like, can't really talk to the liberals anymore and can't really talk to anybody on the left anymore. Dave, look in the fucking mirror. Look in the fucking mirror. It ain't them, dog. It is you. All right, next. So uh, this is really funny. And by funny, I mean on top of ha-ha-hee-hee, it's also like, God, I fucking hate these people. NBC News did a segment on radicalization on social media, including on YouTube, and uh, they did this as if, like, there's this huge problem that needs to be addressed, and they're going to show you how bad the problem is. Watch. Last name. Shares a house with her mother. Where is she now? Is she in the house with you now? Yeah, I think she's downstairs um, with my son. The social media is tearing them apart. The thing she sends me, I feel that I can't trust her if she's my mother. She says a year ago, her mother started consuming right-wing content on social media. This election was a military-grade sting operation and is now sharing videos about QAnon and anti-Semitic theories. Her mother declined to speak with us. It's not that I think she's my enemy. It's that I'm afraid that she's being used as a weapon against me. Researchers say this happens every day. So we performed an unscientific test. I took my Facebook account that had no followers or friends I'm going to follow the top three right-leaning pages plus some dog content and see what happens. My colleague Melanie created a new account and did the same, but she went left seven days. A lot of people just commending President Biden's job so far. 
What the hell did Joe Biden just say, part 14? On Facebook and YouTube, clicking on whatever their algorithms suggest. Melanie's feed stayed with the issues at first. Bernie Sanders shares hearing on the high cost of prescription, prescription drugs. But by day three, it was a lot of one thing. It's a lot from Occupy Democrats that's kind of the dominating force on my page right now. And mine just went more and more extreme. Recommending new influencers. Now they're throwing me a tango on Gino. Conspiracy theories by day four. Bigfoot believers. Really? Non-stop anger by day five. Leftists are becoming the racists. Same with Melanie. So the other day somebody sent me a link to Conservapedia, a Wikipedia made for and by conservatives. And pretty And by the end of the week, a steady diet of fear. The world looks very dangerous on YouTube. Violent robbery caught on camera. Woman fires shots at home intruders. Facebook had no comment. YouTube says that recent changes mean watch time of borderline content from recommendations has dropped by over 70% in the U.S. But researchers say the algorithms are geared to grab us. We click on extreme content, so the system gives us more extreme content. Over time, that can actually give you the impression that some things that are more obscure or extreme are very much in the normal sphere of conversation. The most successful influencers are the most extreme. On Twitter, 73% of posts about politics are created by about 6% of Twitter users, and those 6% of Twitter users have very extreme views. Jerusha now belongs to an online group for adults who've lost loved ones to politics on social media. It makes it 10 times worse knowing that this is happening, like, everywhere in this country right now. Jake Ward, NBC News, Oakland, California. I'm going to say something controversial that you guys might not find controversial, but a lot of, like, polite society folks would find controversial. The weirdo in that clip is not whatever the family members are doing and watching. It's not the family members. It's the person who joined a support group for adults who have lost loved ones to politics on social media. The weird, that person probably is incredibly narcissistic and ego-driven and demands attention and wants a ridiculous amount of time from some other people, and they're hurt emotionally at the fact that people found some interesting stuff that they happen to like on social media. A support group for adults who've lost loved ones to politics on social media. Get out of here, son. So that's what the, that should have been the framing of this segment. Here's a weirdo who thinks that, you know, they've really lost loved ones to politics on social media. I'm sure it is super rare that you actually, like, lose a loved one and that, like, they're totally estranged from the family and they never talk anymore and all they do is bring up the political side. I highly doubt that's way less than 1% of cases. It's ridiculous. But they try to make it seem like this is the big issue facing America. And I love how on the screen at one point it says, does social media fuel political division? Do people fuel political division? Does cable news fuel political division? Fox News and MSNBC fuel political division colossally. Is that an argument that they shouldn't exist? Is that an argument that they should be censored or deplatformed or pushed down in the algorithm? No. So, like, the propaganda is so bland and stale and boring and obvious, but this is the stuff that actually shapes the way the executives at YouTube and other social media outlets, that's what shapes the way they think. So um, I don't know if you saw there, but when they did the argument of, like, 
the far left pipeline is also full of hate, they showed Shu on head. And Shu on head made the argument, something along the lines of like, um, I went to Conservapedia, and boy, was it fucking bad. Have, have any of you ever, how do you run this without looking up Conservapedia? Did you not look at Conservapedia? It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Everything is so incredibly biased from a far right-wing perspective. And you read it and you, I actually laughed when I read some of the things on Conservapedia, whether it's Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, look up one of them, abortion, whatever, look up one of them, Planned Parenthood. It's amazing how terrible Conservapedia is. It's hilariously dumb. So June is 100% that. It's accurate to say that, but they use that as the go-to example of hatred on the left, which tells you what? There's no hatred on the left. There's very little, if any, hatred on the left. Most people on the left who are YouTubers, what are we talking about? Talking about jobs and wages and health care and corruption and endless war. Talk about all that stuff. This is frustrating, but the real scary part was what? When they said, YouTube responded to the criticism from NBC News, and they said, watch time of borderline content has dropped more than 70% in the U.S. That's what we've been complaining about, is that we are considered borderline content. And they're saying, hey, we're digging it down in the algorithm, we're pushing it down in the algorithm, and watch time of borderline content dropped 70%. That's what they're saying. And what, how much did our expand expanse is that is that a word how much did our expansion drop 88 percent 88 we're definitely labeled borderline content and it screws us over for sure and it's devastating i think it's unfair because i would even argue that i'm not borderline by any stretch of the imagination up i'm upfront and honest with my opinions i believe in universal health care i believe in free college i believe in ending the wars i believe in legalizing marijuana and freeing all the nonviolent drug offenders. This is the stuff that I believe in. I believe in equality. This is what I believe in. And they, they act like I'm an extremist that's equal to like some sort of white supremacist. I'm labeled borderline content, and they destroy the channels. That's what's happening. And they admit it. They're bragging about it. They're telling NBC News, hey, get off our ass. We've already crushed the independent people. They're down 70%. Well, I'm down 88%. So I think the 18% the 18% that's the difference there, that would have been the normal drop if the algorithm wasn't screwing me. So in other words, the post-election normal drop would have been like 18%. But 70% of it is because the algorithm is screwing us. I mean, I'm sure I fucked up that math in a thousand different ways, but you get the point. Some of the, some of the struggles are simply because after an election, fewer people are into politics. But probably most of it is because the algorithm is, is screwing us. And so what's the main point of this segment? I'll explain it to you very simply. The main point of this segment is, hey, us here at NBC News want favorable treatment in the YouTube algorithm. We want our stuff pushed out on all the social media outlets. Stop pushing out independent voices or right-wing voices or far-left voices. Stop pushing out all that. Make us the authoritative sources and push our stuff out endlessly. That's really the angle that they're taking here. The real angle of NBC News is prioritize our stuff over this other crazy stuff. And so they're going to do a hit piece on the other crazy stuff so that YouTube gets scared and keeps pumping out the NBC News stuff. Because NBC News views all of independent news and politics as competition. And so they're doing an underhanded smear job so that YouTube crushes their competition for them. And other social media crushes their competition for them. That's what's going on here 100%.
All right, we are done, baby. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of the day. Peace.